This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. It is sometimes said in the law that nothing generates hard work and legal ingenuity more than a costs application. This week, The Wigs examine a recent decision that was keenly awaited by the criminal law community in New South Wales, Rodden v. R. 2023, a decision of the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal. Mr. Rodden was acquitted of murder and his lawyers sought a certificate under the Costs in Criminal Cases Act that would have allowed Legal Aid New South Wales, who funded his defence, to recover substantial costs incurred in the trial. The first instance judge refused the application, holding that the Act only allowed a certificate where the individual accused had personally incurred costs. This was contrary to the long-standing understanding and functioning of the Act and an intention with High Court authority that states the legally aided status of an accused is generally disregarded in costs matters. The decision was appealed and the decision set aside with the court holding it was no bar to an application being granted that an applicant had not personally incurred the costs. Legal Aid had at stake its institutional interest in recovering such cost certificates and many lawyers had at stake a direct financial interest because legally aided lawyers receive a significant uplift in fees in legally aided matters when they secure such a certificate. Unsurprisingly, the case was a well-argued matter and the judgment is an interesting journey through the appellate jurisdiction in New South Wales and the policy issues at play in costs in criminal proceedings. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Means. It's lovely to have you back in uh, podcast land for another session of uh, legal discussions. I'm joined by Stephen Lawrence, MLC. Hi, mate. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Felicity Graham. So good to be back in the studio. It's I love the studio. After our live show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Congratulations on that, guys. I hope it went well. It went it was, pretty well. Yeah, I, I listened it was back really to good. it today. It was good. Yeah. Cool. I haven't heard it yet, but I, I trust everything went fantastically, swimmingly well based on what you've just told me. Emmanuel Kirkasharian via satellite. I've heard that it was not as good as the normal work that we put out that's definitely true i would agree with that having not heard it i, guess <laughs> I haven't heard it either, that but be the, yeah, yes it's got hello jim uh for hello, the sir. listeners who weren't at the live show manny and jim were uh not Absent. in attendance <laughs> but you could be forgiven for yes. thinking that was us <laughs> <laughs> it was a beautiful resort in byron bay oh yeah mm, yeah oh, love it up there nice two days. i'm so glad you guys had a beautiful. good time now yeah. topic number one will be handled by mr stephen lawrence mlc i believe if i'm not mistaken that is correct what are we talking about talking about a new decision of the court of criminal appeal rodden and the queen 2023 new south wales cca 2002 Mm. so this is a really interesting case that the what would you say the criminal law community Mm. has been awaiting uh, the decision on for some time because it concerns whether a legally aided person can secure a costs order after they're acquitted. Uh-huh. And that's a big question in the criminal justice system for a few reasons, but not least for legal aid. Because they've paid nothing up going into it, right? That's right. Mm. Yeah. So there's a system in place, which I'll talk about, where a person who's acquitted through their lawyers, uh, obviously normally, can apply for effectively a costs order. It's a certificate but it allows you to apply for money back. Well, it allows you to apply to be paid at a more respectable rate. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So there's implications for practitioners because if you're acting in a legal aid matter and you get a cost certificate, then you get, I think, a 0.6 uplift on the legal aid daily fee. 7.5. 
Oh, 7 oh, 5 now, is it? Right, I'm yeah. out of touch. Mm. So, yeah, this decision was important for practitioners, but important for legal aid because under the decision which was in place, but it was set aside in Rodden, the ruling from the lower court judge or justice was that a legally aided person could not apply for a certificate. So just moving to the facts and the circumstances of it a bit. So as I've said, it concerned a cost application that was, that was refused by the trial judge after a verdict of not guilty. The accused, Mr. Rodden, was tried last year with six others for murder and he was acquitted. After his acquittal, uh, his counsel, Troy Edwards, applied for a cost certificate under the Cost and Criminal Cases Act. And interestingly, it's actually a condition of a legal aid grant, I think, that you must apply for these if there's a reasonable basis to do so. Is that right, Manny Offlick? Have you heard mm. that? Yeah. 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 yeah, that's always been... Is that because you're, you're on government dime anyway, so it's good to sort of hit th- your opponent up on a victory? I think it's a condition of legal aid grants because legal aid has that institutional financial interest in getting as many of these as possible uh-huh. because what it leads to is not the person who's been accused of receiving any money but legal aid refusing sure. legal aid receiving money uh, from the Department of Justice. Yeah, I get that. So the act that uh, Mr. Rodden applied for the cost certificate under is the Costs in Criminal Cases Act of 1967. So that act is quite old, obviously, and it's also quite short. I reckon it's one of the shortest acts in the statute book. It's an unusual act in a few ways. Firstly, in the sense that the usual position in criminal proceedings, and this is a long-standing aspect of the criminal law, is that no party can seek costs. So that's the general position, but it's displaced by statute in uh, quite a few jurisdictions, but normally not in all sorts of matters. Uh, So in New South Wales, there's limited circumstances you can apply in the local court um, under the Criminal Procedure Act, and there's this act which applies... I think in all courts. It definitely applies in the district court, applies in the Supreme Court. I think it applies in the local court too, doesn't it? I think it does. Yeah, you can get these in the local court. That's a bit more unusual. So it's one of those limited circumstances where the general rule that applies in criminal proceedings is displaced. Uh, So that's uh, an important right for people because uh, criminal proceedings can be terribly expensive, just like civil litigation. It's also unusual in the sense of the test that is set out. It's not the usual test that would be applicable to, to a true cost order, which is normally it follows the event. So if you lose, you pay. And then there's a sort of quite complicated body of law in civil proceedings about costs. But in this act, it's an unusual test. And the essence of it is this, and I'm quoting from section three of the act. A certificate granted under this Act shall specify that in the opinion of the court or judge or magistrate granting the certificate, A, and this is really the relevant part, if the prosecution had, before the proceedings were instituted, been in possession of evidence of all of the relevant facts, it would not have been reasonable to institute the proceedings. So the, so the test that you have to satisfy to get the certificate is not that it was unreasonable to institute the case. It's rather that if the prosecutor, and this is a sort of hypothetical prosecutor, if they, prior to the institution of the proceedings, knew what would happen in the evidence, the relevant facts, and that's defined in the Act, but 
it basically means how the evidence developed in the case. Mm. If they knew all the things that would happen, would it not have been reasonable to institute the proceedings? If you prove that it would not have been reasonable, then there's a few other conditions, but that's the primary one, then you get your cost certificate. As you can tell from the wording of that, um, or sorry, from section two, I think, in fact, there seems to be a discretion even if you satisfy the jurisdictional requirements, a discretion as to whether to um, award the certificate. Uh, but that was sort of questioned in Rodden and it's uh, quite an interesting question. But the fundamental test is that that I just read and it's a sort of retrospective hypothetical test. Um, so the court on appeal sitting jointly is the Court of Criminal Appeal and the Court of Appeal, but constituted by the same three judges... Mm. They said that they did. They finally determine the question of the residual discretion. No, or did they, they, didn't. they just said if it does exist, if Section Two does confer a residual discretion to decline to grant a cost certificate, a certificate should ordinarily be granted yep. given the beneficial purpose of the act. That's right. And there's a lot of case law on this because I've done quite a few of these and been faced with arguments about discretion before and there's cases that basically say look in 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 the case of beneficial legislation that sets out clear jurisdictional requirements that if they're satisfied then normally that's it you normally grant it and the only instance where you wouldn't uh, would be disentitling conduct so for example Mm. delay if you waited two years before you applied or some other circumstance. And I should say there's a couple of other tests in the Act that I won't go through because they're a bit complicated, Mm. but that's the two primary issues. Is that retrospective test met? And then this sort of question of discretion. And in Rodden, the the Court of Criminal Criminal Appeal basically almost went so far as to say it's probably the case that in the circumstances of this Act, may probably means must. Uh, but they didn't decide it. Mm. Um, but that's sort of what they were hinting at, I think. And disentitling conduct in the context of criminal proceedings and, accused, and an accused seeking the benefit of a cost certificate can't be just something like, oh, we kept our cards close to our chest in relation to some defence point or some, you know, a credibility attack on some key witness or anything and then it all came out in the trial because that's fundamental to onus and burden of proof and the accused entitled to being entitled to maintain their I would agree with that but it's position until the trial happens except for some of the some of the incursions on that in terms of case management yeah yeah look I think that's 100% right but it's sort of rendered superfluous as a consideration to the residual discretion because section 31b requires the applicant to prove that any act or omission of the defendant that contributed or might have contributed to the institutional continuation of the proceedings was reasonable in the circumstances. Mm. And that could be thought to include an argument, for example, that you remained silent, didn't show your cards, therefore you were prosecuted. If you hadn't remained silent, you wouldn't have been. But that would be reasonable in the circumstances because you have the right to silence. Yeah. So that sort of deals with that, I think, to an extent. But I think things that wouldn't be reasonable that might have dragged out proceedings, I don't know, they could include sort of incompetently conducting your defence perhaps and therefore dragging out things. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure. But anyway, that's another jurisdictional requirement. So, yeah, it's unusual, this Act. And obviously 
I think I've spoken about this, but uh, the other really curious thing about the Act is that it doesn't really provide for an order for costs. It just gives a person a certificate that they can then lodge with the Department of Justice and seek payment of costs from them, mm. from them, and they in turn maintain a fund under the Act. And my understanding is people generally get around two-thirds of their costs, I think in a normal sort of criminal proceeding. Um, so it's not, it doesn't lead to full payment of your costs. Um, Which is not unusual in the context of costs, though. I mean, no, often, it's not, indeed. If you if you don't get have an indemnity cost order, you don't get all your costs. Yeah, that's right. It's normally sort of two-thirds, yeah. isn't it, in civil proceedings? Yeah. So Section 4 of the Act says a person, and this is important because it's contains some wording that the primary decision, I think, turned on. Section 4 says a person to whom a certificate has been granted under this Act may apply to the Director-General for payment from the Consolidated Fund of costs incurred in the proceedings to which the certificate relates. Uh, so reading that again, costs incurred in the proceedings to which the certificate relates. Now, the reasoning of the trial judge in refusing the certificate, and he had a few different bases to refuse it, but he said this, in Section 4.1, which is one that I just read, the costs incurred in the proceedings refer to costs incurred by the person who has been acquitted so it would be futile to order them as he hadn't incurred any. Yeah, what the judge is saying there is that in his discretion, he wouldn't order a certificate if he had been satisfied of the jurisdictional requirements, which he actually wasn't, because it would be futile on his construction of the act because he hadn't incurred any costs in the proceedings. Mm. And he said a few things, including this, it is strikingly incongruous that the certificate is being sought by the commission in order to pursue payment out of public funds of the amount of costs incurred on behalf of Mr. Rodden, where those costs have already been publicly funded. These considerations warrant an examination of Section 4 of the Act to ascertain whether it is the intention of Parliament that the Court should hear and determine a claim in substance by the Legal Aid Commission, although in the name of the successful defendant in, in such circumstances. The issue of a certificate, if subsequently acted upon by the Director-General, would merely lead to churning of funds between public accounts. And I sort of laughed at that, I must say, when I read it, because I've sought a few of these and been met with responses uh, from judges along the lines of, oh, do we really have to do this? It's just a transfer of money between legal aid and the DPP. It's just a waste of time. And they were seemingly unaware that in a legally aided matter where you're seeking it, it has a direct financial benefit to council mm. because you got, at the time I was doing, a 0.6 uplift. Mm. So for a long legally added trial, it could be you know quite many thousands of dollars. Sure. But in none of those matters did anyone sort of be so so indelicate to tell the judge, oh, no, no, it means money for us too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's important to note that the trial judge wasn't told that the trial judge operate, was operating on the basis that he was fully funded by legal aid. Yeah, and he actually wasn't. And, that, yeah. and he wasn't, mm. and that only emerged on appeal. And I think the evidence that legal aid put on appeal, I think rightly, wasn't available to the trial judge. So, yeah. yeah. Though he had the, I mean, I, you know, a lot of it, and I'll sort of go through it now, but a lot of the reasoning turned upon essentially a rejection of the trial judge's construction of Section 4 and various other provisions and a yeah. rejection of his conclusions in respect of policy matters that he said supported his analysis. But yeah, he didn't know that. In fact, Mr. Rodden had incurred, I think, $5,000 of his own costs that he would have been yeah. eligible to yeah. seek back from the department. So there really was no question of residual discretion that should have arisen because 
he actually did have some stake in it. I mean, I have to say that principally, I I think it's a bit weird to have a judge deciding money going between two government departments. I, I My immediate reaction to it is not sort of horror. Like, I get what the trial judge was saying. I get um, what he's even saying though, too. Even though the, CC, the Court of Appeal, Criminal Appeal, which ultimately made the decision, I think gets it right. But yeah. I get his point. I get his point too on a kind of some sort of level of common sense, but it doesn't sit comfortably with a lot of established aspects of cost law, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so I might just go to what the CCA said. So the first, I think, important part of their analysis was they said this, what his honour had to say about the construction of the Costs Act and the Legal Aid Commission Act, which I haven't spoken so much about, but was unnecessary in our respectful opinion, wrong for the reasons explained below. He says, and they say first, it was unnecessary because on an application for a certificate, the starting point should be consideration of the two matters set out in Section 3.1. That's the jurisdictional requirements I've gone through. Um, and therefore, they say, his honour should never have reached the question of whether to exercise a residual discretion, which has been held to be encompassed in the word may. And as I said before, they doubted whether there is such a residual discretion, but didn't sort of ultimately decide that point. So then they looked at this question of his construction of Section 4.1 and those crucial words, the costs incurred in the proceedings. And they say there is no obvious reason why the expression costs incurred in the proceedings should be so confined and not extend to or include costs incurred in the proceedings by or on behalf of the person who has been acquitted. And then they point to really very established aspects of cost law that that enable people to seek costs when someone else has financed litigation. And they say, after all, it is not uncommon for a litigant to have his or her costs paid for or undertaken to be paid for on his or on his or her behalf, whether by an employer, trade union, insurer, family member or supporter. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, it is a good point. And they say that would not ordinarily result in the denial of an award of costs. Indeed, in many cases, the details of the funding arrangements will be entirely unknown to the court and the other side. And they're privileged. And they're privileged. And they cite Latutus and Casey, which was also cited by the primary judge. And Latutus and Casey was a cost matter that went to the High Court years ago. But the High Court in Latutus and Casey and the primary judge doesn't sort of detail or doesn't deal with this part of it in his judgment. But Latutus and Casey is authority for the proposition that you disregard the legally aided mm. status or otherwise of the applicant on I a cost matter. it was matter. so strange that Justice Fagan referred to Latutus and Casey when that's the proposition for which that authority is most cited. Is most cited for. Yeah, it's the, the complete opposite of what he did. Can um, I just query whether it is privileged? Yeah. Is that right? I, I think I, it I, is. Okay. I just only I only ask that because I know there's a federal court case going on right now where there's some issue about who's funding when and what their pockets are like. I suppose you might have to waive cost. privilege if you want to make a certain application. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. But don't I, I, I don't know the answer. I don't know. I would have thought so because it would be communications that we're engaged in for the purpose of the proceedings, I guess, unless there's some implicit waiver or something. It's funny because I've been privy to a bit of stuff with matters that I do with at work through solicitors and they're informing, instructing me and the client and mm. who's the client. Who's the client, yeah. Well, that comes up, yeah, particularly in civil matters. Like I did a civil matter where the employer was funding it and it gets very... Gets very well, we bankroll all of them. 
Mm. And we had a the union does. Well, in this particular matter, we did, and the uh, client wouldn't take advice, and yeah. we were used as a as the bank to persuade her or him to accept the advice mm. of her solicitor mm. that we were bankrolling. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Anyway, it got very complicated, but it's been resolved but, as of this week. Mm. If I say to you, Stephen, I will fund your legal your defence. I accept. That conversation doesn't seem privileged to me. Mm. Right? That, that, where's the, what's, where's the privilege in that? Well, what's the purpose of the conversation, I suppose? What's the sole purpose? Yeah. And you're, I mean, whose privilege is it as well? No, what's the dominant purpose? Well, yeah, but also you've got a lawyer and I'm talking to you, I'm not talking to your lawyer. Anyway, uh, whatever. It's, a, it's an interesting question. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. So then the CCA says that um, most fundamentally, quote, the text of Section 4.1 does not contain the limitation the primary judge introduced into it. Uh, confining Section 4.1 in a way which limits the reach of the Act's application is contrary to the broad way in which beneficial legislation, including the Costs Act itself, should be interpreted. And then they go on to the policy arguments and... I think I read some of those earlier. So the propositions that the primary judge had put about misallocation of public resources, churning, a massive waste of public expenditure, et cetera, et cetera. Is churning the moving money from one bucket to the other? Yeah, from one side to the other. And they say, um, even if it were ever appropriate for a judge to express these views, the role of the court in forming an opinion as to the matters referred to in Section 3 of the Costs Act makes eminent common sense. Um, the existence of a judicial opinion as to those matters supplies the gateway to an award of costs, that the ultimate decision as to whether a cost award is made is vested in the DG was and is a matter for the legislature. And they say that it's incorrect to say that this involves simply, quote, the movement of money between public accounts. They say that's not accurate. And then they examine aspects of the Legal Aid Commission Act and its um, various aspects. And then they refer to uh, the fact that there's a public policy interest in having cost orders because they can have a salutary effect on parties to litigation. So that's a public policy reason to be able to order these certificates against the Crown. Although I suppose that's sort of interesting in the context of the hypothetical exercise that is being undertaken in this case, mm. because... Although you might have a case where a certificate is awarded in circumstances where everything that is imputed to the hypothetical prosecutor by the end of the proceedings was actually already known by the actual prosecutor at the beginning of the proceedings because mm. nothing's changed. Mm. But in circumstances where there are new things that come up that shift the balance on whether it would have been reasonable or not to have instituted the proceedings... Is a salutary kind of lesson really opposite? I don't think often, but also more fundamentally maybe. It's not the DPP who pays these, right? It's the DOJ. Mm. And the DPP is an independent statutory officer who presumably, I don't know, like if the money's not coming off them, is it really going to have a salutary effect? Mm. I heard recently yeah. that costs orders made against the police come out, out of, of the Department funds. of mm. Justice fund so in effect deprive the courts of a budget and don't actually affect the police budget mm. 
I've had a couple of matters, and go this going back 10 years, where the Crown took the position that they were not going to respond to my submissions for fun, for a cost mm. certificate because, in their view, they were not... It didn't affect them. It's mentioned in the DPP Act as one of their functions to yeah, appear in these applications. Yeah, so right, I see. Okay. So as they a do, contradictor But I've thing. had that as well, Manny. I've had yeah. various practice from Crown. Some vigorously oppose... And some are pretty disinterested in it. They might assist the court or whatever. But So that's the sort of essence of the reasoning. So did Mr. Rodden get his costs? No, because the CCA agreed with the trial judge in one respect that the test was not met. So he won the battle but not the war. Ah. So good on Mr. Rodden for taking the case, but yeah. he didn't get anything out of it. Yeah, nor did yeah. legal aid. But I would say this about the case. It's worth a read on the jurisdictional issues mm. around appeals and judicial review. Mm. Because, mm, I agree. Yeah, they constituted the Court of Appeal and the Court of Criminal Appeal. The reason they constituted the Court of Appeal was there was a question as to whether this might have been an administrative decision, mm. not a judicial decision. If it had been an administrative decision, uh, then judicial review would have been a possible route, and that can only happen in the Court of mm, Appeal. Mm, mm. Um, the court found that it was not an administrative decision, so judicial review couldn't have occurred. And, and you can't judicially review the decision of a Superior Court Justice. Yeah, so it was a 5F appeal against an interlocutory order. Yeah, and they found jurisdiction under 5F. For the Court of Criminal Appeal. Yeah, the Criminal Appeal Act. Yeah, Yeah. so they sat sat as two courts, basically, three judges, and found jurisdiction under Section 5F of the Criminal Appeal Act, which relates to interlocutory orders, which... And there's an interesting discussion about what's an interlocutory order. Obviously, normally, they are things that happen maybe prior to the trial proper, but... In truth, that's not the full extent of the meaning of that term. Yeah. So, for example, getting special leave refused in the High Court is interlocutory. It's not a final type of order. You can re-agitate it potentially. Yeah. So they found that a cost order is part of the trial, uh, but it's an interlocutory order, so therefore there was jurisdiction under 5F, which required leave, which they granted. So it's worth a read if you're interested in the various jurisdictions about reviewing and appealing criminal decisions. Yeah, so just to pick up the language um, of 5 capital F, the order to dismiss the application was one that was, quote, given or made in the proceedings, quote, for the prosecution of the offender and indictment, notwithstanding that the applicant had already been acquitted. In Mm. other words, you know, actually the final determination of the criminal proceedings had occurred. Yeah, yeah. I I found it quite interesting that you can, had this been a decision of a district court judge or a magistrate, then there would have been an appeal to the Court of Appeal or effectively they could have run certiorari in the Court of Appeal because it's an inferior court. That's Mm. right. But because Justice Fagan is it, a Superior Court judge, that they, need, they, they can only be an appeal um, and an appeal requires some statutory basis to ground that appeal. That's yeah. right. And so it would have had to have been jurisdictional error, wouldn't it, if it were an inferior court? Correct. I guess that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 Um, but, yeah, so very, very sort of interesting that it kind of fell within this line that that it wasn't an administrative decision but wasn't otherwise appellable unless mm. it came in under 5F. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, but it anyway, highlights course, a yeah, yeah. potential lacuna, doesn't it, in that Yeah, sense. it does, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
also this issue, this distinction between superior courts and inferior courts or courts of record and so on is a pretty interesting one and one that we'll discuss or would have discussed depending on what order we put these out in the Vasta um, case. Yeah, it's central to that, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. yeah. But poor That'll Mr. be for Rodden next episode. Next week pays when, we the when we reconvene. Pays mm. the innocence tax. You know, the, the secret barrister, the um, UK barrister who's published a few books about the horrors of the criminal law over there, talks about the innocence tax that defendants pay. What's right. that? I gotta read the that idea book. is that you that you, if you're found innocent, you don't get costs. Yeah. As a rule. Yeah. And it's bizarre because in every other area of litigation, if you're if you win, the costs follow the event yeah. unless there's some sort of other thing that displaces that rule. For some reason, in criminal cases, that's not there, which I mean, might have been. It's well, mostly beneficial. Most people get convicted. Of something, yeah. Well, but so you don't want costs following the event in that situation, I don't think. Okay, but when you're not convicted at all of anything, why shouldn't you be getting your costs? Mm. It's not like it used to be when that rule was developed, where you'd be arrested and committed and then tried within a couple of days in front of a jury. Most people have to sell their house uh, to mm. fund their legal defence. Why should that be the case? Why shouldn't the state pay when it when it loses like it does in civil proceedings you because know? it would influence whether or not you pursue a case or not more but that's exactly what, I know what you're saying talking about no i know i know i know i know but if cases shouldn't be prosecuted and but then... if there is the cost is not a factor then it opens up the uh floodgates to mm. uh pursue a prosecution that could otherwise fall apart. I wonder if that is one of the policy arguments. I mean, it might be. It might also go back to some ancient crown immunity or something, I wonder. It's been displaced in quite a few jurisdictions, though. Like in the ACT, costs follow the event in the magistrate's court in favour of the defendant. Yeah. And interestingly, in New South Wales, in the Criminal Procedure Act, you know how there's provisions for the police to pay the costs of the defendant in certain circumstances. It's actually a provision in there for for cost orders against defendants as well. That's in much broader terms. Yeah, I've mm. seen... But um, it's rarely done. It's rarely used. And I'm not sure exactly how it would be interpreted. I think it would probably be given a very strict interpretation, but it's there. I've seen it used quite perniciously by yeah, a police so prosecutor and a magistrate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sort of it, almost in... Um, sort of revenge for an application that had been made by an accused mm. earlier in the list. It seems to me anyway. Mm. I've seen it using traffic Gosh. matters and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, where you sort of seem to have made something too complicated or something. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's Rodden. Pretty important decision. And as I said, it had a very, very big practical significance. And Legal Aid stopped processing certificates for for the months that it took for the matter to be appealed up. Oh, until they got a mm. determination. Fair enough. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at... The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.